This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The discovery of a massive stash of cash. Nothing, no people coming and going, nothing suspicious. The surprising place he hid, $3 million. I saw the fragments, I saw the hole in his skull, and I saw the pool of blood in his brain. The mystery of how a young skier was injured on the hill and the search for an adult who may be responsible. And artifacts at the Royal BC Museum that shouldn't be there. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Let him go! Let him go! Protesters show up to greet the Prime Minister. Dozens of anti-pipeline demonstrators rallying in Vancouver. Good evening and thanks for joining us. That's where we begin tonight. Justin Trudeau in Vancouver today, pledging billions for a new Coast Guard fleet, with many of the new vessels to be built here in B.C. But as Nadia Stewart reports, protesters spoiled the photo op by challenging the PM's stance as a climate leader while he's trying to get a pipeline built. This fleet renewal project will be anchored right here in British Columbia. It is a reannouncement of a long-standing shipbuilding program. The Trudeau government planning to spend $15.7 billion on 18 new vessels for the Coast Guard, two of which will be bound for the Arctic and built in Halifax. The rest will be built in Vancouver. This fleet renewal is going to create jobs in everything from ship design and engineering to construction, welding and inspection, while strengthening this world-class Canadian industry. But all this talk of new ships was drowned out. Listen, Trudeau, you're a liar and you're a weak leader. You're a liar. Climate leaders don't build pipelines. By protesters highlighting Trudeau's track record on pipelines. Two paid $250 each to get into this fundraiser with an eye to confronting the Prime Minister. He's going to illegally construct and push this pipeline through and it's important for me to go in there in these rooms and tell him he's not welcome here and neither is his pipeline. Outside the event, allegations of shoving by police immediately after a protester with the American Indian Movement is detained. About 100 anti-pipeline protesters disrupting traffic in Yaletown and calling attention to one of the problems plaguing this government, looking to woo B.C. voters just five months from the federal election. This wasn't an Arctic-oriented announcement today. This UBC political science professor says naval procurement in this country often takes decades, adding the ships likely won't be delivered while Trudeau is in office. So, he says, this isn't about the vessels. This is uh, an announcement that was more directed at the election and perhaps also at keeping some jobs in Halifax, building ships the Coast Guard doesn't really need. Nadia Stork, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on Trudeau's visit. And Keith, we'll go back to that Coast Guard announcement. It's mm -hmm. potentially very good news for B.C.'s economy. 
Yeah, but as Nadia Stewart pointed out in her story, Michael Byers, the UBC prof, pointed out as well, these are very much long-term projects. The payoff here doesn't come for some time. This is all about uh, getting the attention of B.C. voters on the eve of, of the fall election and thinking about something other than Jody Wilson-Raybould and SNC Lavalin and other scandals that have plagued the Trudeau government. Uh, big photo ops like this that carry big dollars can be effective come election time. All right, let's see if they remember by then. Uh, obviously, there may be pressure on the PM to... <laughs> kind of hang around here over the next few months and uh, are I, we going to be seeing more of them i think yeah my uh, people in ottawa tell me you're going to see trudeau out here quite a bit between now and the election campaign and the campaign itself and the reason is he needs the ridings he picked up in 2015 17 of them and added one in a by-election but some of them are going to be tough to hang on to i've sorted out singled out seven of them uh, on a map in metro vancouver uh basically last night going back to uh terry lake last night is an evidence the liberals are still very much in the game here 300 people in nomination meeting in Kamloops, traditionally a conservative riding terry lake a former mayor at mla very popular there he's got a shot at winning there. But can Trudeau hold the seats in Metro Vancouver? Uh, I think about seven of them, mostly in the eastern uh, Fraser Valley. They only won by less than 2,000 votes in those uh, ridings. Other ones a little a, a little more uh, generous to the Liberals. I also put to Vancouver Granville on there. That's Jordy Wilson-Raybo's seat. If she runs as a Green or Independent, that may very well threaten the Liberal hold there. So again, it's going to be a challenge for Trudeau and the Liberals to hang on to all these seats. Other ones are much more safe territory. But it's the reason why the election is expected to be as close as many people think it is, those writings become very important to a difference between the Trudeau government holding a majority government or a minority one, or even an outright loss. Mm -hmm. Lots going on between now and October. Thanks, Keith. All right. Now, how well do you know your neighbors? A senior living in subsidized housing in Burnaby recently had his home raided by police. Inside, they found millions of dollars in cash. Jordan Armstrong now on why police believe he's connected to Australia's biggest drug bust and how officials here are suing to keep the money, even though he hasn't been charged. Could this quiet complex on Burnaby Mountain be linked to the largest drug bust in Australia's history? That's the allegation, and neighbours here are stunned. I can't believe it. That's crazy. In early February, U.S. agents found more than $1.2 billion worth of drugs in containers full of stereo equipment bound for Australia. Two people were arrested in Australia. That same day, RCMP executed a search warrant on Unit 86 of this property, owned by Metro Vancouver Housing Corporation. Rolando Guajardo listed himself as a retiree and lived in this low-income subsidized unit. But it's alleged the 69-year-old had a lot of money. RCMP claim they found more than $3.2 million in this home. I know, and the rest of us on the block are starving. <laughs> Go figure, eh? Now, BC's Director of Civil Forfeiture is trying to seize the cash. In court documents, it's alleged guns and more than $153,000 Canadian was found in the master bedroom, much of it in a Harry Rosen bag. But the jackpot for investigators was in the second bedroom, $2.8 million Canadian most of it in duffel and grocery bags, stuffed under the bed. He's a lovely man, has three beautiful daughters. We just couldn't figure what was going on. The documents claim Guajardo had stayed at the Australian home of the accused kingpin and spent time at his California stereo business. But at the time of the bust, Guajardo was in Canada. Where is he now? A woman leaving his unit said she didn't know. So Rolando's not around? No, I, no. Not at all. Do you know where he is? No. 
Guajardo has no criminal record in Canada and is not facing criminal charges. But a lawyer who's not involved in the case says that doesn't stop police and the director of civil forfeiture from filing suit. It's easier for the police and the director to pursue the civil process. And what is being lost in doing that is people going to jail for their misdeeds. None of the allegations has been proven in court, and Guajardo has yet to file a response to the lawsuit. You think you know your neighbors, right? Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A warning tonight from North Vancouver RCMP about a sex offender. Police have released this sketch of a suspect accused of exposing himself to a 13-year-old girl in the 200 block of 27th Avenue last Wednesday. He's described as white, 40 to 50 years old, balding with brown hair on the sides and a double chin. He had a slight unknown accent and was driving a silver SUV. RCMP are looking into whether this incident is connected to similar crimes that occurred on the North Shore over the past year. The brutal murder of a Vancouver Island teenager back in the spotlight tonight. Family of Kimberly Proctor expressing their outrage at the justice system. They say they feel betrayed at the pain and suffering. Parole board hearings cause victims' families and are taking bold action in the hopes of galvanizing Canadians to demand tougher sentences. Kristen Robinson reports. The pain really never will go away. Joanne Landolt reading her brother's words after they learned one of Kimberly Proctor's young killers has applied for day parole. We learn somehow to live with it, but when so-called Canadian justice lets this happen, the healing stops. 18-year-old Kimberly Proctor was raped, tortured and murdered in March 2010 by her classmates, 16-year-old Cruz Wellwood and 17-year-old Cameron Moffat. The pair meticulously planned the killing, pleading guilty to first-degree murder. In April 2011, both were sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 10 years. Now Wellwood wants to get out. We have to go through this. It sets us back as a family and as a community. It sets us back emotionally and mentally. In a social media post, Fred Proctor laying out the horrors inflicted on his daughter inside this home. The details too graphic to include here. His goal? To highlight a system he says is re-victimizing his family by giving a young killer a chance at freedom. Once you become eligible to apply for parole or day parole, you can make the application, even if there's not a hope in heck that you're going to get out. With credit for time served before trial, legal experts say offenders can seek early day parole. So we know he's not going to get day parole on his first try for sure. Well, it's not fair. It was re-traumatizing us again and again. Canada's public safety minister telling Global News no one can imagine the horror Proctor's family has gone through but that parole eligibility is not automatic and protecting Canadians is the top consideration. Fred Proctor demanding change. I feel powerless, outraged, disbelief, betrayed by the system, he says. The victim's survivors ultimately serve the life sentences in Canada. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Now to the heartache of another B.C. family. Their loved one murdered in an unprovoked attack that sent shockwaves through Coquitlam. The killer, Stephen Stark, has been in jail for almost 25 years. But the victim's family believes he's still a threat and they want everyone to know that he's just been granted escorted day passes. Grace Key reports. 
Stephen Stark was just 18 years old when he was convicted of second-degree murder and the brutal beating of Graham Nevin almost 25 years ago. Graham's family is devastated to learn that Stark has been granted escorted temporary absence from his Vancouver Island prison. Shock. Complete shock. Um, it happened so fast. So he is escorted out to a halfway house. Back in August 1994, Nevin went to a Coquitlam convenience store to call a cab for a broke stranger. That's where he came across Stark, the son of a Baptist minister. The two didn't know one another. Stark threw Nevin through a storefront window and stomped on his head. Stark described the violent attack in this taped interview with police. And I picked him up and I threw him down and then jumped up and threw me through the window. Stark has been denied parole before due to his violent behavior in prison, including a gang war that resulted in six prisoners being stabbed. It's too late almost for me. 25 years with no remorse, now it would be futile. Um, so for me, deportation, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Stark is an American citizen and he could face deportation once released. Grace Key, Global News. Coquitlam RCMP are looking for a potentially important witness to a fatal crash on Mariner Way two months ago. RCMP say the witness seen here was driving a white SUV westbound on Riverview Crescent and was stopping at the intersection at Mariner Way at the time of the crash. It happened back on March 25th. 13-year-old Deborah Seol of Coquitlam died when a southbound vehicle collided with a northbound vehicle, sending that car into a pedestrian island where Seol had been standing with her friends. RCMP emphasized this witness is not suspected of any crime. If you know the driver or you are the driver, you're asked to call Coquitlam RCMP. Meantime, North Vancouver RCMP are also looking for witnesses who have information about a mysterious incident on Grouse Mountain that left a teen with serious injuries. The youth was skiing when he swerved to avoid another skier and was struck in the head. No one realized how serious the injury was at first, so RCMP are hoping to speak with witnesses. Catherine Urquhart has today's emotional appeal from the teen's father. North Vancouver's David Keir struggled to keep his emotions in check. So we took him in an ambulance to Children's Hospital. His 13-year-old son Max was hurt two months ago while skiing the cut at Grouse Mountain. It's believed the teen swerved to avoid another skier, an adult male. That individual then threw his pole at Max. Initially, the wound appeared superficial, but it turned out to be a traumatic brain injury. And the CT scan revealed a bullet-sized hole in his skull. If you can, the temporal bone is located between the corner of your eye and your ear. So if you find that little, find your cheekbone and then roll your finger above it, that's where the ski pole went in. When the doctor on call showed me the CT scan and I saw the fragments, I saw the hole in his skull, and I saw the pool of blood in his brain, you freak out as a parent. Mounties have scoured surveillance images from the ski hill, but have been unable to locate the person who threw the pole. They're requesting witnesses and video from anyone at Grouse Mountain March 30th, about 7 p.m. An unidentified woman uh, noticed his injury and, and offered her help. We would like to speak with the woman who helped him. Investigators say it's unclear if the injury was intentional. Max's father hopes the person in question will come forward and believes his son will make a full recovery. So we're hopeful that six, nine, 12 months from now we'll be able to say, yeah, we're, 
we're able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A battered RV on a wild chase through the streets. The innocent passenger on board and the dramatic conclusion coming up later. And a great-grandmother busted at Disneyland. What they found in her purse that had her in handcuffs. First, though, the Royal BC Museum will no longer be collecting indigenous remains and artifacts. In fact, hundreds of items will now be available for repatriation. Kylie Stanton has more on why the museum changed its policy and how it's helping reconnect indigenous people with their past. These are ground slate points. Every piece tells a story that's been passed down for generations. You see something like this and you realize the workmanship that went into it. These artifacts have long been gone, but never forgotten. And now First Nations from across British Columbia are finally bringing them home. We have the, the cultural belongings, which are, are the masks and different things. Um, but then we're also looking for the remains of our ancestors. The Cowichan tribe has spent decades working to repatriate their items, many of which were obtained during the years of the potlatch ban, from 1885 to 1951. These are actually from a collection, a private collection. While some have been returned out of goodwill, the Royal BC Museum is now participating in the process by no longer accepting ancient remains and making anything obtained during a time of duress eligible for repatriation. I would say the Royal BC Museum is a, has been at the forefront of repatriation and a lot of these communities are just beginning their journey. So my advice to them is... Um, uh, buckle in because you're in for a long ride. <laughs> but recent provincial funding is making things a little easier. The Ministry of Tourism, Arts and Culture awarded $600,000 in grants last year, allowing First Nations to start their research, travel and begin negotiations, not just here in BC, but around the world. We don't even know what's out there. There's no word on whether another round of grants will be made available, but that is not stopping the Cowichan tribes. It may cost them time and a lot of money, but getting back what's theirs is priceless. For us to bring these artifacts home would be amazing. Kylie Stanton, Global News. It would be amazing. Victoria. Crews from B.C. are among the firefighters heading to Alberta to battle that massive wildfire now burning just a few kilometers from the northern town of High Level. Nearly 5,000 people have been evacuated and have been told they might be gone for some time. Officials say the fire is too dangerous to fight its leading edge on the ground, so they have to use air tankers and keep the ground crews on the flanks. The fire now covers more than 900 square kilometers. That's nearly three times the size of the city of Surrey. Shades of what we went through here in 2017 and 2018. We told you last night how the community of 108 Mile and its well-known resort are still fighting back from the devastating wildfires of two years ago. As Sarah McDonald reports tonight, people in the region are also working hard to try to make sure they're better prepared if the forests burn again. Life as they know it has returned to a relative state of calm in the province's South Caribou region. The spring season bringing with it new life, but also fresh fears of what's poised to be yet another dry and potentially destructive summer. Down the hillside sounded like a uh, 
freight train coming down the hillside. In rural areas like this, wildfires like the ones that ravaged the region in 2017 can spread at astonishing speeds. Something ranchers and farmers who came close to losing their own livelihoods and fought the flames that destroyed those of others know all too well. It's something we have to accept. It drew the neighborhood tighter, closer. With hundreds of B.C. firefighters now being deployed to Alberta as that province deals with multiple out-of-control wildfires, those here are watching closely and hoping this province doesn't see a similarly early wildfire season. So fire could go through. Regional district but officials are urging up. property owners to be proactive when it comes to preventing future fire damage. While we're celebrating and moving on, we're as uh, wary of the upcoming season as everyone else. We ask people to be careful out there, just take a little extra care. While investing half a million dollars in doing the same with strategic fire breaks and clear cutting in areas already charred. For farmers Lynn and Lauren Landry, their most valuable fire guards have four legs and fur coats. The couple's livestock guardian dogs making international headlines in 2017 for protecting dozens of sheep all alone for a remarkable 20 days. They held the fort down for sure. They went wherever the sheep went. So they were there to protect them against the wolves and the coyotes for sure. Flames sparing their property then, yet still serving as the impetus to better prepare for the unpredictable nature of wildfire season, knowing there are few things they can rely on. Sarah McDonald, Global News, 100 Mile House, B.C. The latest numbers from the provincial government's River Forecast Center show that snowpacks across B.C. are among the lowest for this time of year in the past four decades. And that's both good news and bad news. Snowpacks across B.C. range from a low of 32% on Vancouver Island to a high of 85% in the North Thompson. But on average, B.C.'s snowpacks are 64% of normal. That means the risk of flooding is low, but the risk of low stream flows across the province is increasingly likely. The main things we'd be looking for would be potential impacts for, on the flow for fish, for uh, water supply, depending on what the, uh, the nature of the water supply is for a community, uh, or irrigation and that kind of thing. The River Forecast Centre says spring and summer weather will determine whether low stream flows are a problem through the summer. In Consumer Matters, a warning tonight from B.C.'s Consumer Protection Agency when it comes to door-to-door -door sales in this province. There is a troubling trend that could put your consumer rights at risk. Our Consumer Matters reporter, Andrea, is here with the details on that. I expect to see this trend, Sophie, as we head into summer. Thank you. Consumer Protection B.C. says it's heard of door-to-door -door sales companies offering consumers kickbacks or discounts as an incentive if they refer that company to a friend. The problem with that is when you invite a door-to-door -door salesperson to your home, you could potentially be wavering your consumer rights and you won't be protected by law. Now, under BC law, consumers have certain cancellation rights when they enter door-to-door -door sale contracts. Consumer Protection BC oversees these contracts but says when someone invites a door-to-door -door salesperson to their home more than 24 hours in advance, the transaction may no longer be considered a door-to-door -door sales contract. This means that the protections in place around door-to-door sales contracts no longer apply, including the 10-day cooling-off period. So the door-to-door -door sales contracts in British Columbia, there's a pretty specific definition for it. And so if you actually arrange for a business to come to your home, 
more than 24 hours ahead of time, it doesn't trigger the definition of a door-to-door -door sale, and that's the issue that we're seeing. So when people came to us and we looked at it, that was what we were noticing was problematic for people, and people don't understand that they might be waiving their cancellation rates. Now, last year, Ontario banned unsolicited door-to-door -door sales on appliances like furnaces, water heaters, and air conditioners. But B.C. has yet to do the same. Consumer Protection B.C. says it's important to read contracts carefully, read reviews, and research the company you're dealing with and always ask about the cancellation policy. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, and thanks for that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 12 people were hospitalized today after a car crashed into a Quebec City cafeteria over the lunch hour and then burst into flames. Witnesses say two cars collided in the intersection, sending one of the vehicles through the cafeteria's front window. The workers in the building say this would have been much worse if not for the fact it was the first warm and sunny day after a cold, wet spring and many people were eating lunch outside. Thankfully, the injuries are not life-threatening. A dump truck driver seems to have overestimated the weight limit on the top floor of a parking garage. Take a look at the results. A dump truck nose up in a giant hole in a New Jersey parking garage. It actually crashed through two levels of the parking building before stopping a few steps away from a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant full of kids. No one, not even the driver, was injured. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Critics of Canada's fish farms say the Federal Department of Fisheries has lost control of the salmon farming industry. They point to documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act that show weak regulations make it impossible for DFO officers to do their jobs. This is a sea louse doing what it does best, sucking the life out of a juvenile salmon. One or two lice on these little fish, because they're only this big, is lethal. It used to be that juveniles, defenseless because they haven't developed scales yet, didn't have to cope with sea lice. But salmon farms changed all that a couple of decades ago. When they go by the farms, there's billions, literally, of lice larvae floating around these farms and they attack the wild fish and just eat them to death. For a while, salmon farms were able to control lice to a degree with drugs, but they are becoming resistant. The infestation on young wild salmon, critical. Now, we're seeing up to 100% infection with uh, an average of 12 lice for, per fish. To find out why this was happening, biologist Alexandra Morton did a Freedom of Information search and obtained hundreds of pages of internal government emails. These veterinarians and biologists said to the companies, okay, if you can't control this, you need to get these fish out of the water by February, by the end of February. The company said okay, and then they didn't do it. Time after time, she found evidence of farms not doing what was asked of them. One aquaculture company's response? 
Greek seafood complies with all parts of all our licensing conditions and are in full compliance with the sea lice threshold. We always respond to requests and directions from the DFO. That is technically correct. The problem stated in one email that the conditions of license set out by fisheries are unenforceable. As long as the company has a plan and uh, executes the plan, they're good to go. It doesn't matter if the plan works. And so it was that the infected farm fish remained in their open net pens while wild juveniles passed by, becoming infected themselves. This is people inside DFO trying to protect wild salmon from these fish farm lice and saying their hands are tied. What DFO vets, biologists and officers are asking for is clearly stated in their emails. The condition of license needs to be changed for conservation and protection reasons for wild fish. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. In response to the allegations that Cermak, a Norwegian-owned salmon farm company, isn't following regulations, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans says it issued a warning letter to the company. Cermak says it did respond and says the DFO was satisfied with its response. In Health Matters tonight, Vancouver's Union Gospel Mission has broken ground on a major new facility to help women and their families. The seven-story building will have 135 beds, a big increase from the current 21 beds, as well as 63 long-term housing units. The $35.5 million center will offer childcare spaces and a women's addiction recovery program. That every single woman that would see this building would know there's a way out. They would know that there's hope. And they would know that we would be waiting with arms wide and helping hands. The UGM says the Women and Family Center will be the only facility of its kind on the downtown east side. It's slated to open in 2021. It's a story that serves as a warning for anyone heading into the United States with their medical CBD. A grandmother and great-grandmother both arrested and charged when police found them with small amounts of cannabis oil. Hester Burkhalter was arrested at Disney World on a family vacation. Well, I'm going to have to put cuffs on you because officers stopped the, the 69-year-old great-grandmother at a security checkpoint. Let's turn around. After discovering a small bottle of CBD oil in her purse. I don't know if I can get in like this. This after Lena Bartula, a 71-year-old grandmother, was arrested at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Security officers also discovering CBD oil in her bag. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers have seen a dramatic uptick in CBD oil. Within the last six months, uh, the increase in our interception rate for that has, has, has skyrocketed. Both women were taken to jail and faced felony drug charges. They made me uh, take pictures, put on a jumpsuit, take my clothes off. Charges were dropped in both cases, but the lawful arrests highlight confusion over the popular product. While many states have legislation regarding recreational or medical marijuana, CBD is complicated. It's considered a controlled substance. So if it's discovered in your bag at an airport or border crossing, you could be arrested. The women say CBD was recommended by doctors to ease ailments like arthritis, though the only FDA-approved use of CBD is for epilepsy. Tonight, a drug used for treating ailments causing headaches of its own. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News.
This Kansas teenager is attending not one, but two graduations this month after the forecast, why he's years ahead of his fellow grads. And just ahead of Christie, cameras in Adelaide, Australia capture a meteor turning night into day for a few seconds. The Astronomical Society of Australia says the spectacular show was put on by a piece of space dust about the size of a marble entering the atmosphere. Looks like quite a lot bigger than that, it looks like. Well, when it's going, what is it, 17,000 kilometers an hour or miles an hour? I don't know, something like that, so... It looks bigger. <laughs> burst of energy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we just love that burst of sunshine behind you. It looks good. Yes, and we've got another great day on the way. Look at this. So we have seen some cloud cover just in the last couple of hours, but basically blue sky today and temperatures range from 19 to 25 degrees. This is two to four degrees above seasonal, so sensational. Expect almost a carbon copy again tomorrow. I wanted to just give you a quick tally of our numbers so far for this May, the amount of rain. We've had only five days of rain, and that's only amounting to about 30% of what we should see throughout the entire month. We have about a week left of May, so we have time uh, to sort of increase this number, but it is very dry. Just to give you an idea, the fire danger rating has gotten a little bit better because of the recent rain, but overall, this is how dry it out is out there using Agriculture Canada's drought level. All of this area in yellow showing abnormally dry conditions across the province, with this brown area showing a moderate drought level. And keep in mind, we're only in May. We haven't even approached our summer months yet, so just give you a perspective of the dry weather out there and here's a tally new board for you 31 active fires across the province right now of those 26 of them person caused just to give you an idea of how much we could avoid if we were really careful now speaking of lightning only two of them across the province but we've got a whole bunch of lightning potentially tomorrow so development in the afternoon because of daytime heating with that warmth possible showers but also a risk of thunderstorms from the bc peace river area right down through the central interior caribou okanagan valley temperatures will be above seasonal again and then with those showers and a risk of thunderstorms. We'll be watching for any more fires. Out in the East Fraser Valley, also a slight risk of a shower, but otherwise sunshine tomorrow. Showers expected Friday into our Saturday morning, but then we should dry out, and Sunday looks quite lovely, that's for sure. And I'll leave you with this shot. My hometown, Crescent Beach, Corey sent us this, and this is a couple sailors from the Surrey Sailing Club, and I actually used to teach there in the evenings and uh, enjoyed this type of a scene many, many evenings as I was going through high school. Tonight would be such a lovely evening for it. Yeah. Thank you, Christy. Nice work. Well, many high school graduates are heading off to college, but Kansas teenager Braxton Morrill doesn't have to because he's already graduated. Braxton is graduating this month from high school and from Harvard. Back when he was 11, Braxton was getting bored at school, so he enrolled in online classes at Harvard, and he's been taking courses ever since. Uh, so a few days ago, or a few days rather, after he gets his high school diploma, it's off to Cambridge, Massachusetts to collect his liberal arts degree with a major in government from Harvard. And after that, he says he wants to go to law school. And after that, if he's smart enough, he'll become a journalist. <laughs> I don't know Just if that's, totally. that's smart. Really? <laughs> no. We could have made different choices in college, but he we didn't. He started when he was 11. And his name is Braxton Morrill.
Yeah. Well, we would have done that too if there was such a thing as an internet back then. That's yes, you're right. Uh, we didn't have that. That's why that. you did. Is the we had to order books and stuff by mail. Who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. Am I just I, fixed his makeup a little bit. Am I good? Yeah. You're looking at me like well, no, no, it's not really good. We but need you to just... have a lesson. Okay. Okay, I'm and sorry. move on. And move on, says Marsha. I messed up tonight, folks. Uh, the Whitecaps are running with the Red Bulls tonight in New York. And considering how much travel they've had of late, the Whitecaps will probably need some Red Bulls just to keep their energy up. So let's go and see a Zach McMath in goal for Vancouver. First goal, Joaquin Ardaiz across. Scott Sutter. That's a nice shot. Top corner, no less. And the Whitecaps in the 29th minute have a 1-0 lead. And Sutter is happy. His makeup looks good. Brian White ties it up. Double header. One head, two heads, it's in. So it's 1-1 in the 37th minute. Down 2-1, Vancouver gets a penalty kick. Usually it's the other team that gets a penalty kick, but Freddie Montero straight through. 2-2 late in the second half. BC Lions camp is going on in Kamloops, and this, of course, is a much different looking team, starting with the head coach, Devon Claybrooks. He's only 41. It's his first head coaching job after being an assistant in Calgary, but he has the respect of the Lions players already, including quarterback Mike Riley, who knows we'll all have to cut Claybrooks some slack. You know, there's going to be hiccups. I mean, it's his first time as a head coach. I've been with two other first-time head coaches in this league, um, and they're both great coaches, Chris Jones and Jason Moss, uh, but they weren't without their mistakes early on. So there's going to be challenges. I think he understands that and embraces that, but he also has a lot of faith in his staff. Um, you know, they're all very knowledgeable, and for the most part, except for Stubes, uh, they're all very young and and wasn't too long ago that they were playing. So I think that they can communicate with the young guys better than any staff I've been around because they're not that far removed. If this is to be Kawhi Leonard's only season as a Toronto Raptor, if he has to go home to L.A. next season, at least he is giving Toronto every ounce of himself in the playoffs. And give the Raptors credit. They went all in this season by getting Kawhi Leonard. And he has the Raptors tied with Milwaukee 2-2 in the Eastern Conference Final. Toronto has found a way to make the Greek freak look meek, at least for the games in Toronto. And no play embodies that more than last night, this dunk by Kawhi on Giannis. Let's take a look. Here he comes, number two. Give him the ball, Marc Gasol, right on his head. Watch Gasol, watch him. Go, 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 go. I'll give it to you. And you can dunk on Antetokounmpo's head. Game five in Milwaukee on Thursday. All right, BC Sports Hall of Fame is tomorrow night. They're going to induct a very impressive class led by the Sedin Twins. But one guy who was overdue for this honor is former Whitecap and Canada coach Tony Waiters, who was the man in charge of the Whitecaps when they won the NASL title 40 years ago. It's all over the Vancouver Whitecaps are the new champions of the North American Soccer League, and they earned it every step of the way. Winning that championship was one of the biggest sporting moments in Vancouver history, but to the man who helped build and coach that Whitecaps team, Tony Waiters, nobody on the squad understood just how big the win was until they came back to Vancouver the next day to a hastily arranged parade and rally. I mean, the range for... Uh, open top limos to pick us up at, uh, uh, at YVR and, and I remember Bobby Leonard Uzi saying 
He says, well, it's a good idea. He says, well, is there going to be anybody there when we get there? There were about 100,000 people there that day. The Whitecaps were a culmination of waiters quickly putting together a championship team in just his second full year on the job. And he had the go-with-what-you-know plan. His roster was exclusively Canadians and players he recruited from the UK. And, and at first people, people didn't like it. Uh, they called us the English Mafia. Uh, until we started playing with a bit of style and winning games and then we became the Vancouver Whitecaps again. He was a great manager and uh, you know that team, uh, even though we had some quality players, we weren't uh, considered the best team in the league. Um, but the way he managed us, obviously it was uh, very successful. He was also successful with Canada's national team, getting them to the 1986 World Cup. They didn't win a game, they didn't score a goal, but they weren't embarrassed either. Our team wasn't the best team in the World Cup by a long chalk. It was the fittest team because the Canadian players would run through a brick wall uh, and... and um, and we worked on that. One thing about Tony Waiters, perhaps because of the early success of the Whitecaps or just the beauty of the city, he never left. Well, we went back uh, uh, five weeks ago uh, um, and my wife said, oh, it's great to be back. Why did we leave? And I said, we left because we came here to a new world and, and as far as I was concerned, uh, th this was my new home. My wife says, well, what would have happened if we stayed there? I said, I have no idea. One thing we do know, if Tony Waiters never came to Vancouver, this would never have happened. Getting in the middle of Weimark, the shot. It's in. It's a goal. Weimark scoring his second goal of the day. Weimark kicking the ball. I was downtown that next day at that rally. I looked for myself, but I couldn't see myself. <laughs> I was Still, very small then. The coverage from Jim McKay, too amazing. But we got to go. Okay, yeah. let's check in with Andrew now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Anne? Thanks, Sophie. And we are with the Prime Minister, who was at a fundraising event in Vancouver tonight after being heckled by protesters earlier in the day. Also this evening, a town hall meeting on Burnaby Mountain to discuss what to do if there were a major emergency there. With a growing residential neighborhood next to the university, there are concerns about having only one road going in and out and no police or fire department on the mountain. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie, right. Chris? Sounds good. Thanks, Ann. All right, we're going to end the program with one of the wildest police chases you're ever going to see. A woman is in custody in Los Angeles County, California, after leaving a trail of destruction with a stolen RV. You can see this motorhome making wild turns out here. It was just after rush hour Tuesday evening. I cannot believe what is going on. Authorities afternoon. in Santa Clarita chased a stolen uh, motorhome with a huge gash. Behind the wheel, a female driver with two dogs inside. During the pursuit, you can see one dog leap from the moving RV. Oh! Oh my God! No, 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 no. Somehow walking to safety. The driver maneuvered her way through several streets and sped through intersections, slamming into cars. Whoa! Ho ho! <laughs> this woman's vehicle was totaled after colliding with the RV. Oh my God, I was practically pulling my hair out. 
It's the most craziest thing I ever seen. I'm just like, whoa, what's going on? I hear a kaboom. It all came to a violent end. Oh! Injuring a driver in the process. She jumped out of the RV, one of her dogs running behind her, but didn't get far before police tackled her in front of a home. Charges that we're uh, looking at right now would be felony hit and run, felony evading, and also we're investigating uh, driving under the influence at this time. At least three people were hurt, all with just minor injuries, and officials say both dogs are safe with animal control. Jamie Ucas, CBS News, Los Angeles. Soft tissue injuries, apparently. Oh, okay. Dog's okay. What a couple of cars aren't. No. True. No, total. All right. We're totally done. Thanks for watching. Have a good night. Good night, all.